0: I pray that uh, this study through First Peter has been an encouragement to you, and especially a reminder of the big picture of things. Because a lot of times, when we've got all the things happening in our lives that are happening, we can get overwhelmed with all of what's right in our face. And First Peter has been a reminder: God is good, and He's done some amazing things. And, and if we can keep that picture of life and eternity that he offers us, it gives us strength in the middle of all the other things that we have to struggle through and work through in our lives. And the, the overarching theme of this letter that Peter wrote is that, that there is hope and faith in the middle of suffering and struggle. Hope and faith in the middle of it all. But it's also not just this shallow, idealistic kind of a letter. It's not just a preacher who likes to get up and tell everybody, oh, just be hopeful, just be happy. It's all right, you know, yeah, the world's falling down around you, but let's just all be happy. It's not that. It's not that at all. In fact, Peter, time and time again, says, look, there's real struggling, there's real suffering, there's real pain and sorrow in this life, in the middle of that, and with a full understanding of that, there's a possibility to, to have faith and hope in the middle of it all. And that the conclusion of the letter, where we're going to get to today, is no different. What he's going to say here is, listen, stand firm in your faith, even when some of the harsh realities of life begin to hit you. And, and Peter, we re- have to remember, was clearly aware of how hard it is to hold on to hope when life is hard, but he was also very aware of the glory that's beyond this life. When we started out in 1 Peter, we actually did the first couple weeks just looking at Peter and his life We did kind of a character study where I walked you through the Gospels and through the book of Acts where we saw all these different events of who this fisherman was and who he became when he met Jesus. And we talked about many of the different stories that are very well-known stories in the Bible because Peter was central to Jesus' ministry. Peter was the closest disciple to Jesus. Peter was the one that was there. If you remember this story, when Jesus, they were, the disciples were out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, Jesus came walking on the water. Remember that? And Peter was the one who actually stepped out of the boat and stepped onto the water and walked. It was temporary, but he walked for a little while a while on the water with Jesus. Peter was the one who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and it radically changed his life. As we, uh, as we go on into 2 Peter, which is the, what we're gonna do next because we're already in the Peter zone, so we're gonna stay there. And when I finish 1 Peter, we're gonna jump into 2 Peter. It's, it's only three chapters, so it's a short one. But he's gonna, again, remember this, this next experience that on the Mount of Transfiguration that radically impacted his life and his vision of who Jesus was. He'd already seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles, healing people, walking on water, things like that. But when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember what happened, he got there and the glory of God shines down on Jesus and Jesus is literally transformed, transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John on the mountain there. And when that takes place, then Elijah and Moses show up. And if you're a Jew, there's nobody bigger and badder than Elijah and Moses. Those are the superstars, the author of the law and the author, the, the, one of the main prophets of all. They show up and they're talking to Jesus. So Peter at that point is like, oh my goodness, he is glorious, he is good. Not only that, we know Peter was there to not only watch Jesus be crucified, but he was there to see the resurrected Jesus. He was there in that locked room with the rest of the disciples when Jesus shows up and says, look, here's the scars in my hands, and my side. It's me, and I'm alive. I'm back. All right? So Peter knew the struggle, but he also knew the glory, and he also knew what was going to happen, and he had seen these things with his own eyes in this life that allowed him to hold these two tensions in place. And that's what we're going to see here today as we finish. Two opposing perspectives. A harsh present and a hopeful future. I'm definitely going to get you through the harsh present, and we'll just wait and see if we get to the hopeful future, okay? Um, and, and we're going to jump in here with that. Let me pray for us as we, as we jump into reading the Scripture here together this morning. Father, I do ask that you would speak to our hearts, I have the privilege and the burden of knowing that many of us in this room this morning are going through a lot. And I know that there are a lot of heavy things in our hearts and in our minds. And God, we need to know how to navigate those hard places in our lives. And Lord, we come to you for those things. As we saw earlier in this chapter, you, you care for us and you call us to cast all of our anxieties on you because you care for us. And that's what we wanna do here this morning. So I just pray God that you would strengthen us, that you would give us courage to hear what you wanna to speak to your children. And I pray Lord that you would give us open ears and open minds and open hearts to receive all that you're gonna speak into us through your word here today. We love you and are so thankful to be called your kids. And we pray that you would minister to us now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're there in 1 Peter chapter five, we're gonna begin with verse eight. That's where we find ourselves in our study. And here's what it says. Peter, speaking to these people, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, remember, this is the last chapter of the letter. This is the end of the letter. And like any good pastor, toward the end of his message, he has to tell his people, listen, wake up everybody, pay attention to this part. That's what he does here. And he says, you need to be alert. You need to be clear-headed in the way that you think about these things. You need to be sober when you hear what I'm about to tell you. And what he does as he saves this warning for the end is he talks about another source of struggle. All through 1 Peter, he's talked about all these different human sources of struggle. He's talked about how the fact that just our interpersonal relationships with each other creates a lot of struggle in life. He describes the relationship difficulties. He describes personal sin when we do some of the stuff that we do that comes back on us and causes struggle in our lives. He talks about trials, just the trials of life that come up, all these different human things. But now he's going to point to a spiritual source. This is the first time Peter's talked about the devil at all in 1 Peter. But he brings this up and he says, You've got to be aware, you've got to be alert. There's a devil, and he's an adversary. Now, when we read this, and you look at this in 2021, the the question immediately comes to our minds, okay, hold on, the devil? Is the devil real? Is Satan real? Do demons exist? I mean, obviously here, we see Peter believed that there is a real devil with a malicious intent. He says, look, he's out there to devour you. Is that just an ancient, uneducated myth? You know, they talked about the spiritual world and demons back 2,000 years ago. Is that what that is, or is it true? Now, as Bible-believing Christians— Which, for me, it's really difficult to understand somebody who calls themselves a Christian without being Bible-believing, because the way that a Christian is one who is a follower of Christ, but the only way we know anything about Christ is what we find in the Word. Right? So when you start trying to separate your belief in Christ from the Bible, it gets really cloudy really quickly. So, like anything else, when we come to it, we're like, hey, what? is real about this, we turn to the scripture. It's our authority. It's the word that we look to to find these sorts of answers. And so when we ask that question, is the devil or Satan real? Do demons exist? We look to the Bible and say, well, what does the Bible actually say about it? Now, it's it's important to notice that Peter says, look, make sure that you're not lulled to sleep. Wake up. Be sober-minded. Pay attention on this. You've got to answer these questions because it's easy to just kind of blow that off and be like, yeah, you know, back in Palestine in the year two, they probably had demon possession problems. But I live in the modern world. We don't run into these kinds of things every day like they did. But we don't want to be lulled to sleep on that. We've gotta look and see what the Bible actually says about it, so let's do that. Let's take a look at this. Um let's, let's look at some of what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about Satan? What did Jesus believe about the devil? And what did the apostles believe? And then even what did the centuries of Christians afterward um, believe? So I want to start us off looking at what Jesus believed about the devil, all right? And we're going to do that by taking a look in the Gospel of Matthew, And the first story that we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 4, and that's found in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each one of these gospels talks about this important story. Now, I will tell you this, neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke were there when this took place, but it was so important to each of them because I believe Jesus told them what took place in this event, all right, And it was so impacting to each of them that all of them record, recorded this in their gospel. All right? And in Matthew chapter 4, and you can turn there if you want, or it's going to be on the screen here if you can see it. Um, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at the first 11 verses there. And here's what we find. It says there in Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Why do I bring up this story? It's a well-known story, the temptation of Jesus. But there's a few things that we can pull out of this that help us understand Jesus' perspective of the devil, of Satan, all right? Number one, it shows that the devil exists, So Jesus tells his disciples later, hey, this is what happened to me before I began my ministry. I was tempted by Satan. Satan, I I went out into the wilderness and Satan came to me and talked to me. All right, so not only does Jesus tell these disciples, hey, there's a real devil, his name is Satan, but we also learn that the devil here speaks. He persuades. He reads the Bible. That may surprise you reads it well enough that he can quote Scripture back to the author, and he tempts. All right, so this, I believe, is one of the places where we see that Jesus certainly believed in the devil and the existence of him. Now, let's go to one more passage I want us to look at in Matthew chapter 12, just a few pages over there for you, because Jesus is going to refer to the spiritual kingdom here um, in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. It'll also be on the screen for you. And here's what takes place. It says, then in verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man, now we're talking about demons here, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the, the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That's a reference to the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for to come and save Israel. But when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, which is another name for the devil. He's got lots of names, all right? Satan, the devil, Beelzebul. Here's three that we've seen today. The prince of demons that that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. What Jesus is describing here is he's having this dialogue with the Pharisees. He's he's done what he does lots of times, which is goes and casts out a demon out of this demon-possessed man. And when he does that, the people are like, whoa, this is awesome. But the Pharisees are like, huh? Yeah, well, that's just because he's part of Satan, that he can throw out Satan. And Jesus is like, what? Do you even realize what you're saying here? What Jesus describes is he says, no, look, there are two warring kingdoms on this earth, on this planet. There is a spiritual realm, and in that spiritual realm, there are forces of evil and darkness, and there is forces of good and light, and these kingdoms are functioning in this world that we live in the natural world and he also describes that there is a prince of peace who he himself is the prince of peace but there is a prince of darkness now the difference is that we see here is it makes it very clear that he the prince of peace the prince of light the 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 son of God almighty is stronger than this prince of darkness. That the prince of darkness and the demons and Satan himself are inferior to God. That's what he says. He's like, look, you got a strong man. And if the strong man is guarding the house, you can't go rob the house unless you can take care of the strong man. What I just did is I walked in and I bound up the strong man and I did what I wanted to do and I walked out. He is stronger than the devil. So, what I, and, and these are just two of the many, many passages that we could look at here today. But what I want you to get out of this is Jesus clearly taught that the devil and demons are real and that they're opposed to God. So, let's just take a quick look here at a few other things because if that's new thought to you, then you've got a lot of questions. All right? And if you do, I want to just give you a quick little background to help you as you go through the scripture and understand where does this all fit into things. Because let's, let's be honest, you'll talk to a lot of people, and I've talked to many people uh, just recently. Uh, I was talking to a neighbor down the street not too long ago, and he said, you know, I believe in God. I can, I can fathom that. That seems like something that could be out there. But you can't really know this God, and as far as all those ideas about hell, or the devil, or all that, no, 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 no. I just believe about, I believe about God. That, that seems to make sense. But that's kind of a, there's kind of a disconnect there, because if you're going to say, all right, I believe in some sort of a spiritual thing, then where are you going to get information about that spiritual thing? Well, I don't, it's just, you can't know, you can't know. Well, the Bible is one of those pathways to understand the spiritual realm, and God himself from that spiritual realm entered into this physical world. So who is Satan, and where did he come from, and where is he going? One passage we can look at, and we're just going to look at a couple here. There's lots throughout the Bible, but I'm going to look at just a couple with you. first one is found at the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, written by the Apostle John, says this in verse 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and if you've studied Revelation or even read Revelation, it's pretty wild, but John is seeing all these different events that are going to happen at the very end. And he says in this, he's seeing this vision of what is to come, he says, I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And We won't go into all that today. It'd take too long. But here's what it says in verse two. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. Now that little phrase, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, actually is pushing back all the way to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And in Genesis chapter three, this is a pretty well-known story, even if you are not been around church much, in Genesis chapter three is where we see Adam and Eve having a conversation with a serpent in the Garden of Eden, And in Genesis 3, verse 1, it describes this serpent and says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That crafty word is very interesting. And it, it means that he's very shrewd and very discerning and very clever. And what scripture shows us is this devil is a created being He was not always like God was always. But it also tells us that he's been around a very, very long time, from the very beginning. And he's there from the beginning of history to the end in Revelation, okay? Now, what else does the Bible tell us? It also tells us a little bit about what he actually does here on earth. John... um, Quotes Jesus here in John eight forty four, and he is talking again, arguing with some of the spiritual religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they're basically saying that he's more of what we saw earlier in Matthew chapter twelve, where they're saying you're from Satan and you're just with all the evil powers. And he says, no, 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 guys. And in fact, let's be very clear about this. In John eight forty four, he says, you are the father, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And listen, this gives us insight into Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does the devil do in this earth and in this world? He lies. He's the father of lies. He deceives people. He misleads people. He misdirects people. That's what he does. So what's Peter saying here when he tells us, hey guys, pay attention, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour He says, the reason I need you to pay attention to this is because he's out here to kill you. He's out here to take you out. That is the harsh present that we live in. Sorry, I know you came to church to get happy, but (laughs) this is the truth. That's part of the world that we live in. So what can we conclude from some of this? Well, there's a real devil whose name is Satan and he's alive and well in this world. He's an ancient, crafty liar. And he and his demons are actively functioning in this world, as it says in John 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he's doing. And he is extremely effective in his work. And he works like any other master terrorist. He generates fear oppression, disruption, and destruction, and he's in it to draw as many people to his cause as possible. He wants to lure people in. As Peter tells us, the devil wants to devour us. Now, before I just say, amen, go home, and good luck, what we also have to remember is a few other things that we know through the scripture in regards to the devil. First off, the devil is not the opposite equal to God. All right, when I was a little kid and you'd watch cartoons, this was back in the day before on-demand anything, before the days of the internet, that's how old I am. Um, You'd sometimes see a cartoon where you'd see the character that have a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other shoulder. And it's like, which one is he gonna to listen to? The angel's gonna say this, the devil's gonna say that, and he's back and forth between the two trying to make the good decision. Well, that gives you the impression that, yeah, the angel and the devil, they're just trying to, trying to, they're in an equal argument. They're kind of equally matched, and all they're looking for is to win over the person in the middle to try to be on their side, so they're kind of equal. But that's not the way it is. The devil is not an equal to God. God. Nowhere close. The devil is not omnipotent. That means all powerful. The devil is not omniscient, meaning that's all knowing. The devil is not omnipresent, meaning he can be everywhere at all times. God is those three things. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. God is everywhere at all times. The devil's not. The devil's limited. He's a created being with a limited lifetime. It's a long lifetime. He's here through the history of humanity, but it's still limited. And ultimately, the Bible tells us that his life is going to end in eternal fire created for he and his demons. That's what Jesus told us in Matthew 25 41. All right, so the devil isn't equal. He's not an equal to God. Now, as we push into this a little more, um, I think that the author C.S. Lewis had a really great statement about the devil. Here's what he says. Here's a quote. It'll be here for you. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, all right? The other is, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, all right? These are the two errors that C.S. Lewis pulls out, and I, I, we see this in our culture now. Error one just says, I don't even believe there is a devil. Like, you can't prove it. I've never seen him. I just think bad things happen, and people want a scapegoat, so they invented this devil to say the devil did it. The devil made me do it. You know, the devil tugged my heart, whatever, all right? But I believe that there is a real devil, and I also believe that his primary strategy for dealing with our modern Western culture is this first error, to convince us that he does not exist. Now you might say, well, what kind of strategy would that be? Why would the devil not want us to know that he exists? It's it's very simple. It keeps us from putting up our defenses and being aware of the risks involved. It's why Peter would have to say, hey, sober up, pay attention to this. You need to know there's a devil that's out to get you. You know, um, in some parts of the country, probably even still today, in small town America, there are probably little places where you don't have to lock your car. You don't have to lock the door to your, your house, right? And in the old days, back in the 50s or that sort of era, which I wasn't alive then, but back then, some of you were. That's how it was all over this country. You wouldn't have to lock your doors. Why would you lock your doors? Why? Because people had a shared ethic, a shared morality. You didn't have high crime areas. You didn't have to worry about somebody just coming and walking into your house and taking things, right? So because of that, if there's not an existence of the crime that you're trying to avoid, then you just go on about life like Like it doesn't exist. I'm not gonna lock my door. Nobody's gonna take my car, all right? But soon as soon as you're aware of those things, if you drive up and down my street often and you see the piles of glass on the ground and which I did this week and my daughter said, "Uh, did somebody break a bottle there? I'm like, no that's a windshield. (laughs) Somebody busted into the car. When you see those things and you know that stuff's happening, you begin to lock the doors. When you leave the house, hey, make sure you lock the door, set the alarm. Why are we doing that? Because we're aware of the risks involved. This is exactly why the devil would not want a culture like ours to be aware of his existence at all. Why? Because your guard is down, you're leaving the door unlocked. And for many of us, he gets the same destruction, it's just with a different method. It most of it, I think, in my opinion, is pivoting on greed, but that's for a different day. All right? So what happens is we just ignore it like, it like it's not there. But Peter says to us, hey, wake up, pay attention, there is a devil. Now, the second error is different. And some of you will know people that are this way, um, and, and some of you just know it's out there. All right, but he all, the second error is he says that some people feel this excessive, unhealthy interest in them. Some people not only believe in the devil, but become enamored with him and with the demonic and the power that he has and allow themselves to become slaves to evil. Um, you know, you guys got the privilege of, of listening to um, Rudy's testimony the other, the other um, day. And if you talk to Rudy, he can tell you some pretty cool stories, or scary stories as it might be, of people that he's encountered with some demonic thing, demonic activities going on. This is the sort of people that get into things like voodoo, and witchcraft, and sorcery, um, the dark magic, all of that. Here's what we recognize. There is a real devil... And what we also find out from scripture is that this real devil has been given real power. He has real power. He's not as powerful as God. He's not all powerful, but he has real power. But be reminded he has temporary authority. God has given him authority, and that one is beyond me. Why on earth would God give the devil authority? Save that one for God, because I don't have an answer for you. He has temporary authority, but he has real power, and that real power, when people see it and get caught up in it, they get pulled towards it. They're like, I want to, that's power. That's why these people go to the fortune tellers. Oh my gosh, she really told me what was going to happen next in my life. There was real power there, and it pulls them in, but guys, that's extremely dangerous. If there's a real devil, and there's real power in that dark, end of things, it's extremely dangerous. Nothing good can come of it. The best case scenario is only survival. Think about this. The devil has had thousands of years to scheme and devise traps to destroy human beings and to bring souls to the pit with him. That's his plan. That's what he's out to do. Now, we've got a picture now of the devil and what he's doing but there's good news, okay? There's good news. Christians do not need to fear the devil or demons. You don't need to fear the devil or demons. We have been given a boldness and a confidence in dealing with demonic forces. John, the apostle, writes this in 1 John 4, 4. He says, little children... He was an old grandpa at this point, so everybody was a little child to John. He says, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. If you go back in 1 John 4, 4, what he's talking about is false prophets and evil spirits. He says, look, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's referring to the Holy Spirit versus the spirit of the devil and demons and evil spirits. And he says, don't worry. The spirit of God is greater than the spirit of the devil. So if you are a Christian, what you find out is when you accept Jesus to be the Lord of your life, what the Bible teaches us is that his Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. You are spiritual beings and you have the, your own spirit but you have the ability for the Spirit of God to come and dwell within you. And guess what? His Spirit has no room in the house. He's not gonna be a roommate with the devil. And so what he says is, uh-uh, you're not coming in here. There's no space for any demon or any evil spirit to come possess you or take control of you if you're a Christian. Because the Spirit of God already has that place locked up. Okay, okay. Paul, another one of the writers of scripture, an apostle, said this in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." guys throughout scripture it it let me let me put it this way it's really hard to build a christian theology that's based on the bible and try to eliminate the devil and evil spirit it's i think it's impossible God, though, has given us the ability to resist those things. And that's why Paul says, Look, I, God's given us the ability to stand against his schemes. He is, God is the source of superior power. We, however, just little old you and me, human beings, we are not powerful enough or clever enough to attack the devil and we're not even asked to try. We are called to hold fast in the anchor of our faith. Basically, what it comes down to is Satan is this bully, and what do we do? We just go and hide behind our big brother Jesus. (laughs) I say, take care of him. (laughs) And he does. He does. And that's why in verse 9 of 1 Peter, I know, believe it or not, I just talked that long about that one verse, But here we go, in verse nine, here's what he says. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, when we talk about suffering, we've been talking about suffering nonstop through 1 Peter. Suffering can come from our human sources or the fallen world that we live in. Suffering can also be the result of our own choices, but much of the suffering in this life Peter teaches us, is directly or indirectly caused by the devil's work. A lot of the suffering in the world. Sin itself entered the world through Satan. And suffering is not something new or unique to you. That's what he's trying to encourage you with. The devil wants to destroy everything that God loves, and people are the tip-top of that list, Sure, the devil would go through and want to destroy the earth and and do whatever he wants to do to the, the environment. But that's not as important to him as hitting people, taking down people. That's always going to be at the top of his list. So how are we supposed to deal with those things? That's what he's been telling us. We don't poke the devil or prod him. We don't pick on him and call him out. And I know that there are some churches that you'll go to that... You see some of that happening. It's almost, I've been to some churches where I'm like, gosh, guys, you're almost praying to the devil. <laughs> calling him out, calling him by name, and I demand you do this, and I demand and Okay, what I see in scripture is he says, no, 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 just take a few steps back and just stand firm, hold on to Jesus, and keep pointing to Jesus and looking at Jesus, and let Jesus deal with the devil. All right? We are called To put our hope and trust in our Savior who's overthrown the devil and has the strength we need. We're called, as he says here in 1 Peter, to stand firm in our faith. But that's not always easy. That's not always easy. There's a constant tug on our hearts to bring us down and bury us in a fallen earth. Suffering is heavy, suffering is hard but faith is the footing we need if we want to have stable lives. Would anybody like to have a stable life? (laughs) I would. You know, where, where I like to surf in Point Loma on sunset cliffs there, I've surfed there for over 25 years now at this point, and I've seen the cliffs change in these years. And every year, even the spot that I climb down to, that cliff face has changed. We used to be able to go down this way. Then we could go down that way. And now we can only go down this way. Because those things have washed out. They've collapsed. They've fallen. Every winter, I'll walk along the beach and look and see a huge pile of rubble at the base of the cliff where it collapsed during the last rain. And sometimes what happens is people get too close to the edge, even though the signs are up everywhere, stay back, unstable cliffs. And they're like, yeah, but it's so beautiful. I want to see, I've got to get my picture, my selfie. And they get all the way to the edge. And at times, it collapses under the weight of a person. That's what he's describing here. He says, look, I understand there's a lot of danger, but if you want a solid footing... You can't go to these other spots. You can't lean on other things other than your faith. You can't lean on your bank account. You can't lean on your retirement savings plan. You can't lean on, well, I had a, uh, you know, a, a good medical record of the rest of my family, they were always healthy and they lived to 100, so I guess I will too. You can't hold on to those things because what he says is unless you're rooting yourself in faith, everywhere else you stand is the edge of the cliff. It's unstable ground. And the suffering and struggle and pain of life is going to come for every one of us. But he says, if you can root yourself in your faith, you're going to be able to survive those things and you're going to move beyond and move towards what God has for you. James says the exact same thing. Here's another apostle, James 4, 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We don't fear the devil. We don't fear the demonic because our faith is rooted in Christ and we stand firm in that and allow him to flee. Why does he flee? Because he's been conquered, not by you, not by me, but by Jesus. We'll finish here this morning. Here's what it says in Colossians two thirteen to 15, describing that. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You know the legal demands that he's talking about here? Another one of Satan's many titles is the accuser of the brethren. He is a heavyweight prosecuting attorney in the spiritual courtroom, and the legal demands say that the wages of sin is death. And what Paul reminds us here in Colossians is he says, Jesus came and wiped out that penalty of death. And you know who that really upsets? The prosecutor who is saying, no, 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 God. You said that if they sinned, that they're gotta die. That's what the devil's doing. But Jesus came up and took care of that debt for us. And God, who is the righteous judge, is up there saying, yes, Satan, you're right. That is, the wages of sin is death. But those sins have been taken care of by Jesus Christ. And so he goes on there and he says, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is talking about the spiritual realm and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's what we finish with today. The harsh present that we live in is that there's a real devil. There's really spiritual things happening that you can't see and you're not aware of. The devil is among us. But the hope in all that is that Jesus will have the last word. Amen. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has overthrown the devil and all that evil. Amen. Amen. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen. And there's more, but we don't have time for it this morning. So you've got to come back next week and we will talk about the hopeful future that we have. All right, pray with me.